be continuing my occasional series on 2 Corinthians this evening. To uh, refresh our memory a little bit, Paul has been dealing with several themes in this letter so far. One of his focuses up to this point has been to defend his ministry and apostleship to the Corinthians, who have lately been listening to other spiritual leaders instead of Paul. Spiritual leaders who claim to have a superior apostleship to Paul's. In light of this, Paul defends himself and he critiques his rivals, labeling them peddlers of God's word. Within the context of his defense, Paul has also talked about suffering in the Christian life and the comfort with which God comforts his people. And he's repeatedly hit on the pattern of death and resurrection, rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ that's so often to be reflected in the lives of Christ's servants. In the last portion of 2 Corinthians that we looked at about a month ago, Paul spoke of the dual calling he has to love God and to love those he is called to minister to, in this case, the Corinthians. He spoke in terms of his role as being an ambassador for Christ. In our text tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, Paul ties that role together with some of his earlier themes and applies it specifically to his relationship with the Corinthian church. And so with that in mind, please hear from our text this evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Working together with him, then, that is Christ, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone, anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. This is God's word. At first glance, as we look at this text, it appears that there is a lot going on in it, but the element that ties it together, I think, is the theme of Paul's relationship to the Corinthians as their spiritual father. That comes out explicitly at the very end of the text, in verse 13, where Paul says at the end of his appeal, I speak as to children. Now, while it might sound at first like Paul means that condescendingly, that doesn't seem to be his intent. He doesn't seem to be commenting on the Corinthians' maturity primarily, but his main point is that he seems to be saying, I speak as to my children. 
His point is not so much about whether or not the Corinthians are mature, but it is to emphasize that he is rightly their spiritual father in the faith, that he has affection for them as such, and that they should respond to him accordingly. Paul in our text is explaining why he should rightly be considered the Corinthians' father in the faith and what the implications of that are. Now, as we consider that, we'll notice, of course, in our text there are elements going on here that don't directly apply to us or to our relationship with mothers and fathers in the faith, Paul's apostleship being chief among them. But the case that Paul is making here still has a lot to say to us because his case here, and really throughout the letter, does not only apply to apostles. His case is rooted in the nature of Christ and the gospel and it has implications for a variety of relationships. What emerges from our text is the larger meaning and the larger significance of fathers and mothers in the faith. That is what our text is primarily dealing with, the significance of spiritual leaders in general and of fathers and mothers in the faith in particular. And we should reflect for a moment that by that we do not only mean officers or official leaders in the church. Of course, this text would certainly include and must include officers and official leaders in the church, but its implications go beyond that as well to the variety of spiritual mentors, leaders, and servants in a congregation and even in our lives among the people of God. So as we consider what this text has to say to us about spiritual leaders, about our fathers and mothers in the faith, I want to ask five questions of the text. I want to ask first, why do we need fathers and mothers in the faith? Second, what if we've been hurt or misused in the past by those who have claimed to be our fathers or mothers in the faith? Third, how do we identify good fathers and mothers in the faith? Fourth, how should we respond to Christ-like fathers and mothers in the faith? And fifth, how can we ourselves become Christ-like fathers and mothers in the faith? So just once more, why do we need them? What if we've been hurt by those who claim to be them in the past? How do we identify them? How should we respond to them? And then how do we become like them? So that is several more points than I usually try to cover in a sermon, so we'll dive right in and try to move through it. So first, why do we need fathers and mothers in the faith? If that question seems unnecessary to you, then that's a good thing. But I think you should be aware it also shows how countercultural your thinking actually is. To most in our culture, this is an obvious and more than fair question. For most in our culture, it's not at all self-evident that some people should instruct others in what to believe and how to worship or what to value or how to live. Our culture's default, default perspective is a sort of spiritual individualism. And for most people, it goes something like this. They would say, when it comes to spiritual matters, Every individual needs to find what is true for themselves. When it comes to spiritual matters, every individual needs to find what is true for themselves. In other words, you should not have other people telling you what to believe spiritually. You need to find out what is spiritually true for yourself. So what do we say to that when that objection comes up? Because if that objection is true, it would not only put the pastoral staff out of work, but it would also undermine the very point that the Apostle Paul is making in our text. Well, in response to this question, I think we can say 
three things. First is that having spiritual leaders is unavoidable. Or to put it the other way around, true spiritual individualism is pretty much impossible. I think it was Tim Keller whom I first heard point this out, and the line of reasoning goes something like this. The spiritual individualist says each person needs to discover a spiritual truth for themselves and not just accept what someone else tells them about spiritual reality. But of course, here's the problem with that statement. If that is something that you would say, then I'm willing to bet that if you think about it, that spiritual truth claim you're making, that, that truth claim about how every person needs to discover spiritual truth for themselves and should not learn it from others, I'm pretty sure that you did not discover that spiritual truth yourself, but that in fact you learned it from other people. Because that's a very Western, postmodern, individualistic way of thinking about spirituality. In other words, it's a very popular view in our American culture, and I suspect that you were taught it by others in our culture. And so the statement becomes self-defeating. It disproves itself. And this is not just a verbal game, but really it's a reminder of the nature of reality. We do not live in a vacuum. We cannot approach the questions of God and spirituality and the meaning of the cosmos in a bubble. We will always be learning from someone. It might be someone we know personally. It might be someone who's more abstract from us, like an author or a famous spiritual teacher whose books we read or talks we listen to. But it's always coming from some other person, some person who for us is functionally a father or mother in the faith. And we follow their lead, no matter how independent we may think we actually are. So in asking why we need fathers and mothers in the faith, the first thing to see is that having some sort of spiritual leader is inevitable. It's not really a question of whether we will have a spiritual leader we follow, but rather whom we will follow. But we can say more on the question of why we need fathers and mothers in the faith, because second, if we take spiritual matters seriously, then spiritual individualism, this Rejection of spiritual leaders is really a terrible burden and not a helpful freedom. If we take spiritual matters seriously, then spiritual individuals and this concern that's often expressed that each person finds spiritual truth on their own, this is actually a burden and not a freedom. It reminds me of a scene in a novel that I read this summer. Uh, the novel by David Foster Wallace is titled Infinite Jest. Uh, it's not a book for everyone. It wrestles with some topics that would require a fairly mature or discerning reader. But in it, one of the characters, Don Gately, is a former drug addict, a former alcoholic, also a former criminal. He's since sought to turn his life around, and he's gotten clean, and he's gotten very involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's trying hard to follow the program's 12 steps. And one night he joins several men from his AA group in Boston to speak about their struggles and experience at another AA group in Boston. And when he's called up to speak, the scene goes like this. Don G., up at the podium, revealed publicly about how he was ashamed that he was still as yet, that he has still as yet had no real solid understanding of a higher power. It's suggested in the third of Boston AA's 12 steps that you turn your diseased will over to the direction and love of, quote, God as you understand him, end quote. It's supposed to be one of AA's major selling points that you get to choose your own God. You get to make up your own understanding of God or a higher power or whom slash whatever. 
But Gately, at like ten months clean, at the podium in Braintree, opines that at this juncture he's so totally clueless and lost, he's thinking that he'd maybe rather have the older veterans of his AA group just grab him by the lapels and just tell him what AA God to have an understanding of and give him totally blunt and dogmatic orders about how to turn over his diseased will to whatever this higher power is. You might think it'd be easier if you came into AA with zero in the way of denominational background or preconceptions. You might think it'd be sort of easier to sort of invent a higher powerish God from scratch and then erect an understanding. But Don Gately complains that this has not been his experience thus far. Now, why do I think that description in particular is helpful? I think it's helpful because it points out what a burden spiritual individualism is when we take spiritual reality seriously. If your life is stable and you have plenty of money and you're relatively happy and you're able to live in an illusion that you are in control of your own life, then I can imagine that spiritual individualism could seem sort of fun. Draw on a few things that you like from one spiritual thinker over here, dabble a bit in another religion over there. You can make your own designer god. It can be sort of like a noble-feeling hobby in our culture. But in those moments when you need spiritual support, when you realize you need God's help, those moments when spiritual matters cease to be a hobby and become deadly serious, as they were for Don Gately in his daily struggle to stay sober, then spiritual individualism is a terrible burden. Then what we need more than anything are mothers and fathers in the faith who can remind us and tell us who God is and how to relate to him. We need guides and teachers in this area of life if we're to see it as one of importance. We need to learn from those who have gone before us. And to refuse instruction does not make us free, but it leaves us confused and helpless. So we see first that spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith are unavoidable. We see secondly that if we take spiritual matters seriously, then spiritual individualism is a terrible burden and not a helpful freedom. But third, also, as we consider why we need fathers and mothers in the faith, we see that it's through them, according to the Bible, that God often works. And we see that in our text this evening. We see it in the relationship that verses 1 and 2 of our passage have with verses 3 through 13. In verses 1 and 2, Paul is talking about the Corinthian salvation, the relationship with God. And in verses 3 through 13, Paul is talking about his relationship with them. As an apostle, yes, but also as their spiritual father in the faith. The Corinthians are in the middle of deciding who they will regard as their father, their leader in the faith. Whether it will be Paul or these new self-proclaimed superior apostles who have more recently come to Corinth. And Paul is making it clear that who they take as their father in the faith will affect the relationship not only with other human beings, but also with God. Because God works through people. And if we reject God's people, then in the Bible's point of view, we are also rejecting God. And so put together, why do we need fathers and mothers in the faith? We see that spiritual fathers and mothers are first of all inevitable. That second, they are necessary if we take spiritual matters seriously. And third, they're how the Bible says God normally works. So that answers our first question and leads us on to the second. 
Okay, some might say. Maybe fathers and mothers in the faith are inevitable. Maybe they're necessary. But what if we've been hurt or misused in the past by those who claim to be our fathers or mothers in the faith, our spiritual leaders? Then what? And unfortunately, that is a question a lot of people ask. Because a lot of people in our culture have experienced the misuse of authority by their spiritual leaders in their personal story, somewhere in their past whether it was a former pastor or teacher or even a parent. It may have been self-serving manipulation with a leader psychologically or verbally manipulating others for their own personal benefit. Or it may have gone further to extremes that could involve financial abuse or verbal abuse or even physical or sexual abuse. We don't have to look too far in the news to find examples of this. Chances are that we do not have to look too far among those we know personally to find someone who has experienced it themselves. It might be from a parent or a past leader or a former church. And maybe some here have experienced it as well in their past. If you have, it's understandable for you to respond by saying, look at what happened to me the last time I trusted a spiritual leader. I've left that behind And why would I ever trust a spiritual leader again? And you might not expect it, and it might not seem so on the surface, but our text actually has an answer for that. First, it's important to keep in mind that our text tonight, and the Bible as a whole, does not deny your experience, if that is your experience, but it heartily affirms it. Avoiding abusive spiritual leaders is one of the main reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians that we've read from tonight. Paul calls the false leaders in Corinth peddlers of God's word. In other words, these are leaders who are trying to use their position of spiritual leadership for their own gain, to get something for themselves, to use their position and those who follow them in self-serving ways. And that is the dynamic at the root of all abuses of spiritual leadership. Their power is used not for the benefit of their followers, but for their own personal benefit. It can come in a variety of forms, and some forms are far more heinous than others, but that's always the same dynamic at work. It is what Paul is fighting against in this text, but it's a problem that comes up again and again in the Scriptures, in which God's faithful leaders in the Bible repeatedly identify, condemn, and try to abolish. The Bible is completely honest about the terrible effects of abusive spiritual leaders. It doesn't sugarcoat it or downplay it, but it brings it out in the open, condemns it, and demands that it be changed. And so when rightly approached, far from being an easy tool of abusive leaders, the Bible actually contains the very principles and vision and tools that we need to confront such abuses of leadership. So the Bible agrees that such abuse can happen, and it agrees that it can be devastating, But its answer is not to avoid spiritual leaders. Instead, its answer is to direct us away from such false spiritual leaders and towards true and faithful fathers and mothers in the faith. The Bible calls on God's people to appoint the right kind of leaders. It calls on them to protect the flock from false leaders, from self-serving leaders. Now, maybe you were not protected somewhere in your past. And if that's the case, the Bible mourns that. Christ and the biblical authors 
mourn when that happens to God's people. But they don't only mourn. They also offer hope of something different. They offer a portrait of what true fathers and mothers in the faith can and should be. And they encourage us towards such people. And that's the rest of what we'll look at tonight. Which leads to our third question. How do we identify good fathers and mothers in the faith? Paul deals with this in verses 4 through 10, and he lays out four major things for us to consider. Let's take a look at those. The first thing Paul directs us to consider in identifying good fathers and mothers in the faith is, do they endure suffering well? That's the first thing Paul actually talks about. We see in verses 4 and 5. He writes, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Here Paul lists nine forms of suffering, but his point is not just the experience of the suffering, but the endurance within the suffering. He begins the list with the phrase, by great endurance in, and that serves as a sort of heading for the list that follows. Paul says that one of the important criteria in identifying faithful fathers and mothers in the faith is how they endure suffering. Why is that? Well, as Pastor Rayburn stated recently in a sermon on suffering, it often serves, suffering often serves, to reveal our spiritual state and our true level of spiritual maturity. Francis of Assisi, in his work titled The Admonitions, put it like this. He said, A servant of God cannot know how much patience and humility he has within himself as long as he is content. When the time comes, however, when those who should make him content do the opposite... He has as much patience and humility as he has at that time, and no more. When we are stressed or suffering, and when we react badly to something, we tend to explain our reaction to other people saying something like, I'm sorry, I'm just not myself right now. But Francis reminds us here, and Paul reminds us in our text, that it's really in those moments when we're stripped of our comforts, that we're often more ourselves than at any other time. Of course, in this life, no one handles suffering perfectly. That's not what Paul is getting at. The question is more whether we endure it faithfully. Do they persevere? Did they remain faithful to Christ and his people? Did they continue to strive to live for God faithfully, however imperfectly, even in the midst of their suffering? And it should be noted that Paul's list is meant to focus on the reality of suffering in in this life, not to minimize it. Paul isn't saying that these things he'd suffered are no big deal. If they weren't a big deal, then the fact that he endured them well would be fairly meaningless. It is because his sufferings in this world were so difficult and so hard that his endurance proves the genuine nature of his faithfulness. So the first thing Paul tells us in identifying good fathers and mothers in the faith, is to ask, do they endure suffering faithfully? Not necessarily perfectly, but faithfully. Second, to identify good fathers and mothers in the faith, Paul directs us to their character. And we see this in verses 6 through 8. Paul Paul writes that he has commended himself by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, 
genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Paul tells us here what the character of a good father or mother in the faith is like. He gives us a few different groups of traits. With the first four traits, at the beginning of verse 6, he tells us that good fathers and mothers in the faith will act with purity, that is, with sincerity and integrity. They'll be characterized by knowledge of God and of his gospel. They'll be patient and kind. Two things that one commentator points out are not only fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 2, but also qualities of God himself in Romans chapter 2. In the last trade given, Paul says that they have and that they have used the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. This is likely a reference to the sword that a soldier would have in his right hand and the shield in his left. And in other words, it's saying that they are willing to fight for righteousness, whether they need to mount a spiritual defense or a spiritual attack against the forces of evil. And in between those traits, in the middle, Paul lists four more elements which would seem to be at the heart of the character of a good father or mother in the faith. He lists the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God. It seems likely here that the Holy Spirit and the power of God refer to the same thing. It is God by his power and through his spirit that is working these qualities in Paul. It is not something that Paul has mustered up from within or generated himself. It is something that God is doing in him and providing for him. And within that acknowledgement, Paul lists what the ESV translates as genuine love and truthful speech. Commentator Paul Barnett translates those phrases, unhypocritical love and the word of truth, which may give us a bit more clarity at what Paul is getting at here. Central to the traits that he's describing is a love for others that's unhypocritical. It is not self-interest disguised as love, but it is unhypocritical love, genuine love. And along with that is that they speak the word of truth. They bring with them God's word of truth, and they're not afraid to apply it to others or to themselves. By God's Spirit, his faithful followers are characterized by unhypocritical love and a reliance on the word of God. That is what's at the center of their character. And from there, Paul goes on to show us third, that to identify good fathers and mothers in the faith, we must consider their motivations. We see this in the first half of verse 8. Paul lists the wide variety of reactions to his faithful service that he's willing to endure. He says that he ministers through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Peddlers of God's word, Paul's opponents in Corinth, Self-serving spiritual leaders do what is right as long as it also benefits them. They will do good things for others so long as it's mutually beneficial for them as well, so long as it helps them or their purposes or their prestige or career. They will do the right thing when it leads to honor or praise. But here Paul points out that the mark of a faithful spiritual leader, a true father or mother in the faith, is that they will do the right thing, that they will serve God and neighbor, that they will care for their spiritual children, whether for them it leads to honor or dishonor, whether for them it leads to slander or praise. 
In other words, they do not just use their talents or do their good works when it leads to honor and praise, but they're just as willing, and ideally even just as fast, to do what is right when they know it will lead to dishonor or slander for themselves. Fourth and finally, Paul tells us that to identify good fathers and mothers in the faith were to be directed to their pattern of life as a whole. We see this in the second half of verse 8 through verse 10. Paul writes, We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Here Paul gives a number of paradoxes. He first states how he appears, and then he states what the divine reality actually is. And if we were to sum all of these up into one statement, we could say that Paul is explaining that his life is characterized by a pattern of death and resurrection. His life is characterized by the pattern of Christ. His way of life looks like Jesus. He has patterned his life after the life of Christ, and so it is marked by death and resurrection. This idea of life patterned on death and resurrection, of life patterned on Christ, comes up again and again in this letter, and once again here it is central. Like Christ, there is an antithesis between what is seen and the spiritual reality. What is seen looks mundane. What is seen looks unimpressive. But the spiritual reality is glorious. It is weighty. Paul does not look impressive to those who saw him. But he had a spiritual weight that most others lacked. And in that, he was like Christ. But he also lived in a pattern of self-sacrifice that yielded new life. Not only new life for himself, but especially new life for others. Like Christ, he became poor, though obviously to a much lesser extent, that others might have spiritual riches. Like Christ, he poured out his life for the spiritual flourishing of others. And that, again, is what we are to look for in Christ-like fathers and mothers in the faith, what we are to identify, a life that follows the pattern of Christ, a life that may look mundane and unimpressive by worldly standards, but when evaluated spiritually in the day-to-day trenches of real life, in the small sacrifices that are called for again and again for the sake of others, it soon appears how their life is patterned by that pattern of Christ, of self-sacrifice that leads to new life to those around them, in friends and family, in their neighbors and their fellow church members. And with that, we complete the picture Paul is making for us in this text. We complete his sketch of a faithful father or mother in the faith as one who has endured hardship faithfully, who by God's Spirit is characterized by unhypocritical love and a commitment to God's Word, who is willing to do what God calls them to, whether it hurts them personally or not, and whose life follows, in both big and small ways, the death and resurrection pattern of Christ. Now, of course, again, we need to remember that no one does this perfectly. That is not Paul's point. Paul is certainly not saying that he has done this perfectly. But he is saying that he has striven to do it faithfully. So who are you able to identify as a Christ-like father or mother in the faith in your life? 
in your present or in your past? Who is it who has resembled this description in your life, who has faithfully played this role for you? It could be someone in official capacity or role, or it could be a more organic relationship. Maybe you've benefited from them directly, or maybe you know them in the context of a group. Maybe there's someone who is in your life personally, or maybe it's someone whose teaching or life, present or past, you've benefited from, from a distance. You may have few fathers or mothers in the faith, or you might have many. But who are some of them for you? If you've grown up in a home with vibrant Christian faith, then hopefully your biological mother and father would be numbered among your spiritual mothers and fathers as well. But take a moment to ask who those people are and who those people have been for you personally. And again, remember, they might not look glorious to outward appearances, but on reflection they are spiritually. And once we've identified those people in our lives, that leads to our fourth question. How should we respond to our Christ-like fathers and mothers in the faith? This is Paul's focus in the last portion of our text, in verses 11 through 13. He writes to them, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, for you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your heart also. In response to his love, Paul calls on them merely to reciprocate his love. This means, first of all, that we acknowledge what such people have done in our lives. We give them thanks. It has been such a lesson for me to see how we do that as a church here. Just in my short time that I've been here so far, I've seen the spiritual fathers and mothers of this congregation recognized, honored, and thanked on multiple occasions. And that's been a great thing to witness and be a part of. But where we see it done well on a large scale, we also need to examine ourselves and ask, how do we do that as individuals? How do you or I do that personally? Have you acknowledged your fathers and mothers in the faith? Have you expressed your gratitude to them? Have you opened your heart to them as they opened theirs to you? And if not, what would it look like if you did? But along with acknowledging them, we're also called to be diligent, to resist the temptation to ignore our fathers and mothers in the faith, to turn our backs on them. And that can be a real temptation. In fact, that's exactly the problem that the Corinthians are having in this letter. They're turning their back on Paul, their spiritual father, and becoming fascinated instead with something new, something that is more exciting at the moment. The Corinthians are sort of acting like spiritual teenagers. You know how teenagers can suddenly decide that, despite all the work and sacrifice that their parents may have made for them in the past 13 or 19 years, The parents don't really care about them, but it's their new friends. Their new friends whose affection is often thin and fleeting, but those friends whom the teenagers decide really understand them and really have their best interest in mind, not their parents. There's an obvious insanity to how many teenagers assess their parents and their friends, but we can do the same thing on a spiritual level as well, even if we're much older. 
We can ignore our spiritual elders, our spiritual parents, those who have gone before us in the faith, and turn to those who seem more exciting or interesting or comfortable at the moment. And it's an extreme form of that that the Corinthians have fallen into. Our text reminds us to refuse to follow them in that. It reminds us to acknowledge our spiritual parents. It reminds us to open our hearts to those who have sacrificially opened their hearts to us. It reminds us not to forget those who have raised us in the faith the moment that something new and interesting comes along. So we see why we need fathers and mothers in the faith. We see that we need Christ-like spiritual leaders. And we see how to identify them and how to respond to them. But the implications of our text don't stop there. Because like biological parenting, the point is not for us to stay as children. The point is for us to grow to maturity and become adults, and maybe even parents ourselves. Which leads to our last question tonight. How can we become Christ-like fathers and mothers in the faith ourselves? And here I'll try to be brief. Paul does not address this question directly in our text, but he gives us two directions to consider. First, we become Christ-like fathers and mothers in the faith ourselves by imitating our own fathers and mothers in the faith. As children, we learn how to do things by imitating our biological father or mother, and the same is true spiritually. We imitate them. And that was exactly what Paul encouraged the Corinthians to do in his first letter to them. He is their spiritual father that wrote to them, his spiritual children, saying, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So identify those Christ-like fathers and mothers in the faith. Appreciate them, honor them, learn from them, and also imitate them. One significant spiritual father for me was my RUF pastor in college in New York City. And it's been over 11 years since I left New York. But I still today find myself from time to time when I'm in a situation where I don't know what to do or say, or when I consider the first thing that comes to mind to do or say and it doesn't seem very wise or good, I still sometimes ask myself, what would Vito do here? What would Vito say to this person in this situation? And that's not me checking out or abdicating my own judgment. If I were abdicating my own judgment, I'd just say the first dumb thing that pops into my head. No, this form of imitation is an exercise in judgment. It's a turning in our minds to a godly father or mother in the faith whom we trust and imagining what they would do and imitating that. So we imitate them. But also, along with that, we seek God's work in our hearts, and we realize that we cannot become Christ-like fathers or mothers in the faith on our own. And this is the reality that we said was at the heart of Paul's description. We saw it in verses 6 and 7, that surrounding the heart of his description is the power of God working in him by the Holy Spirit. We do not make ourselves in the image of Christ. God does. So ask him to do that work in you. Pray for it. Seek it. Pray for it more often than you pray for worldly comforts or reliefs. Pray that God would make you into a Christ-like father or mother in the faith to those around you. Because it will not happen unless he is the one who brings it about. And if you've heard this list of traits and the task sounds daunting or impossible, 
and you see how far, how far you fall short, then good. This is part of what we should see, and that reaction is actually uh, should give us a bit of assurance as well. It should assure us first, because if we believe we have fallen short, then at least we know we're not as bad as Paul's opponents. They thought they were doing a great job. Hopefully we know better, and that is a step in the right direction. But we should also be assured, because the Scriptures agree with us, that on our own, this is daunting, and on our own, it's really impossible. But God is powerful enough to make us, even us, more into the image of Christ. Trust in his power, trust in his grace, and ask him to make you in his image. The kingdom of God moves and grows from generation to generation like a wave, moving through one generation to the next. We come into the kingdom and we are led and received by fathers and mothers in the faith. They help us to follow our Lord. They love us sacrificially. They point us to Christ. They help us to grow and resemble him. And then soon the responsibility is on us to lead and receive new spiritual children ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves for them, to point them to our Lord and to try to show his love in word and deed. Let us take our place in that great process of God's kingdom. Let us ask God to help us fill our role faithfully. And in the meantime, let us take a moment this week to acknowledge and appreciate your fathers or mothers in the faith, to thank them for what they have done for you. Take a moment to express how much it has meant and to open your heart to them as they have already opened theirs to you. Amen. Amen.